Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Welcome back, everyone. On today's fantastic episode, I have Sean Martin, Senior Director of Adaptation and Resilience at the World Wildlife Fund. I also briefly talk about the Million Woman March and what that might mean for climate change moving forward. Thanks for listening in. So welcome back, everybody. This is your host, Doug Parsons of America Apps. On this episode, I have Sean Martin, the Senior Director of Adaptation and Resilience at the World Wildlife Fund. It, it really is an interesting conversation with Sean. Great guy, has a lot to say about the field of adaptation. All right, a few other housekeeping items before we get started with Sean is that I think this is very exciting um, announcement. I have developed an app. So if you want to listen to the podcast on your own app, you can get it on iTunes or Google Play. Just go in there and search for America Adapts, and it should pop up right away. It is a free app, and there's not going to be any annoying pop-ups that say, oh, now you need to add some money. It's a free app. It will remain free. And what it provides is just additional functionality. It'll show every time I publish, it'll show up there. But it allows you to contact me or share on social media more easily than you might be doing on your, let's say, your iTunes um, podcast app. So check it out. There's an app out there now. And share it with your colleagues. Also, I am going to be at a conference. This was a last-minute thing. The National Council on Science and the Environment. I'll be there this week and talking to some of the scientists there. And Newt Gingrich is actually going to be the keynote speaker. And I'm hoping to maybe get a micro-podcast with him if I can hopefully get the organizers to help me to arrange that. Get him in the hallway or something have a short conversation. And so that's what I'm hoping to do this week. And don't forget, next week I have Dr. Karen Bolter, who's a sea level rise researcher from South Florida. She'll be coming on the podcast next week. And again, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or write a review. And I have a Facebook page. Just search America Daps. And I also have a community group page. Again, America Daps. You have to join that one. I have to approve it, but I haven't denied anyone so far. So please think about joining those groups. And my Twitter feed is at USA Adapts. All right. Finally, my conversation with Sean Martin. Um, he has just been a leader on adaptation at the World Wildlife Fund, and it's just a fabulous conversation. We dig. He uses a Titanic analogy to make a point, and it's not as depressing as that might sound. I think it was a very useful analogy, and so hope you guys catch that and. This podcast succeeds on word of mouth, and so I hope to hear from you, and I won't delay any further. All right. Thanks for joining in. Here's Sean Martin. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is Doug Parsons, your host of America Daps, the climate change podcast. On today's very special episode, I have Sean Martin, Senior Director of Climate Change Adaptation and Resilience at the World Wildlife Fund. Hey, Sean, how are you? I'm doing great, Doug. It's great to be here. Sean, what is your role at the World Wildlife Fund? Well, I've been at WWF for 16 years now. About the last eight years, I've been working in adaptation and resilience. Uh, I first started out developing training for on the topic for WWF and our staff around the world. And the past couple of years, I've actually been leading the whole program. So at WWF, what we're trying to do with my team is to help conservation 
adapt to the changing climate. And we're also helping other fields like sustainable development, humanitarian action, the private sector, make sure that they consider the environment as an integral part of their adaptation solutions moving forward. Well, you guys are a huge organization with an incredible reputation, and I think a lot of people are going to be looking toward groups like yours to kind of be leading on this issue. And so, I'm, I, you know, I am going to think we're going to dig deeper into some of these topics later on, but I'm just, you know, I'm curious, like how long has WWF really been doing adaptation as its own sort of program? Yeah, uh, as far as I know, WWF was one of the very first conservation organizations to get into the adaptation space, and it's... Well over 10 years now, Lara Hansen, who you had earlier on your podcast, she was our first adaptation scientist, and she really spearheaded the work for all of us here. We've had a number of people working on adaptation since then, and as I said, for the past couple of years, I've been heading the program. But we have uh, quite a lot of experience under our belt, both here in the U.S. and around the world. Well, you know, yeah, you mentioned Laura was on the episode, and I, I go kind of way back with her, and I think I've been doing adaptation for a while, and it's like since Australia in like 2004, 2005, and she puts most of us to shame, you know? Yeah. It was the 90s when she was doing some of these things. Lara and I were really good buddies when she's here at WWF before I even got into adaptation, and I consider one of my mentors and one of my idols as I'm, you know, learning all about adaptation, and I'm still learning. She's a good one to have out there. Well, so on, on that note, I have all these multiple topics. You and I talked in advance, and I was getting all excited about this conversation that we're going to have. And just so people know, I think we're going to talk about conservation in general and how adaptation is going to influence that field. But I want to talk about you know adaptation training and then finally about adaptation communication, all things that you've really been doing a lot of work on. But so I just want to jump right into this. You know, I want to talk about how the field of conservation is going or is changing right now because of what's happening with climate change and how adaptation has been this emerging topic. And so I'm sure WWF, you guys have been leading on this, but you certainly don't have all the answers either. And so I'm just curious, like, what are some of these early obstacles that you're having to deal with as you try to bring in adaptation into a major conservation organization? That's a big yeah, question, but like start question. anywhere. And one that I think about every day myself. I first got into adaptation 2008-2009 when one of my staff came up to me and said, Hey, Sean, you're on the adaptation team now. I said, (laughs) Really? I don't know anything about that. I'm interested, but, you know, what am I supposed to do? And they said, Well, you're really good at developing training, so we want you to develop a adaptation training program for our 4,000 staff all over the world. And I said, Okay, great. And that's really how I got into it. I went to the head of adaptation and I said, I just heard a rumor that I might be on the adaptation team now. And she said, oh, yeah, I just wrote your job description. Okay, thanks. Okay, I'm in. Did it come with a pay raise? Uh, No, it just came with (laughs) uh, lots of great travel and a lot more challenging work, but it's been a great ride ever since. So I, I think, you know, we had been in adaptation for quite some time and we were realizing that, There wasn't a lot of in-house capacity to start applying some of the principles that we wanted them to. So I just started out collecting a bunch of smart people, sending them around the world and talking to people about uh, climate change and adaptation and what it meant for their work. And I have did that up until I think my last workshop was in January of this year. I'm still doing a little bit, but we've uh, moved a lot of that stuff online now, which we can talk about. A little bit later. So I think early on, one of our original 
our thoughts were, well, to really mainstream in this adaptation and conservation and get it moving, we really need a lot of training. And so that's been going on quite some time, and we did make some progress, but not nearly as much as we thought we needed. And I think we're finally today at the point where people are realizing, oh, yeah, these adaptation guys, they've been telling this stuff for quite some time. Maybe we ought to take this a little more seriously and integrate it into our own work rather than leaving it up to them. I like to think of my job, let's imagine we're on the Titanic, because we kind of are, right? Good. And Good. Um, I like to think my job is the safety director on the bo- on board. <laughs> Nobly, I'm trying to guide people to the lifeboats and in the face of a lot of darkness and confusion and trying to save as many lives as possible. But that's not what my daily job really is. To make my job successful, it is everyone on board needs to understand that we have a clear and present danger. And that's really hard for people to understand sometimes. So about half of the people on board have put all their faith in captain mitigation, and he's going to save the ship from going down. So those people Mm -hmm. aren't going anywhere. And then I have all these passengers waiting in their cabins until the climate scientists can tell them exactly what time the seawater is going to start seeping under their doors. And then I got the cooks yelling at me from the kitchen that they have fires to put out and there's no way they can worry about the rest of the ship right now. And I got all these other staff rearranging deck chairs thinking that's going to help. And I got to say, hey, guys, can you think of something else? Because this isn't working. And I really think that we haven't come to terms with the challenges that we're facing. So while people think it's a great idea to have a safety director on board, they're not right quite ready to jump ship. We're still clinging to a lot of hope that climate change is a problem that's still far in the future, that it's gradual, that mitigation can save us. For right now, it's just easier to think about keep doing what we're already doing or waiting till the science gets better or focusing on more urgent problems. So I would say, while I'm very eager to help people to get to the lifeboats, we as adaptationists still have a big job to do in conveying the real and urgent presence or real and urgent danger of the threat we're facing. I, I want to take your Titanic analogy because people could interpret that in many ways. All right. In some ways, people look at Titanic and it was doomed. And so even though you're doing all these things as you're getting ready for the ship to sink, it's ultimately doomed. But then, you know, there were some survivors. Exactly right. And so would you say – so that's what you're getting at with the analogy is that we have to recognize that you know, not everyone's going to survive this sunken ship. Right. That is what is the most difficult thing for people to grasp with. You shared with me an article last week on Greg Sherman from the National Park Service, and he had a great analogy or story. He got into conservation for the glory to save endangered species and preserve nature, and now he realizes his job is managing decline. And this is the emotional part of adaptation that we're not really equipped, at least us adaptation professionals, we're not really equipped to, to deal with. No one really trained me how to be a psychologist as I'm, you know, walking people through all the things that we're facing and how they really need to make 
sometimes radical shifts in the work that we're doing and even rethinking, can we achieve the goals that we set out at the beginning of the journey? Well, you know, here's a question more about kind of behind the scenes at World Wildlife Fund. And, you know, I don't, if, if, People don't really understand. I mean, and I don't completely understand, but it's a huge organization and you guys have your own science team and you produce your own science. And so I'm just curious, as a relatively new program, you have longstanding scientists that have done conservation. And, you know, you look at the fundamentals of conservation biology. They've done things a certain way. And has your science division, and I I know you got to be kind of careful in your answer, but I think this truthful answer will be very helpful, I think, for other organizations who are struggling with this too because you have sort of like the previous way of doing that kind of conservation science versus like now we have to do something new, and the way organizations do this is like they come out, they bring in the new adaptation program, and how do you guys kind of communicate and work together, or is is it truly a, a good partnership where everyone's like, all right, we're all doing adaptation now? Um. I don't think we're quite there yet. Let me talk about the science program here. So a lot of people who might be listening to your podcast might realize that about two or three years ago, we had a major restructuring at WWF, and our science team was sort of distributed among different parts of the organization, and we kind of lost a core science as a, a, a unified core team at WWF. And there are pros and cons to that. But now that we've, you know, had a chance to regroup and think about it, we've just hired a new chief scientist, Rebecca Shaw, and she is really a a leading expert on the impacts of climate change on ecosystems and really understands that conservation needs to change its game if we really want to have a future where people coexist with nature. And we are in the process of hiring six new lead scientists, one for each of our Goals, forests, freshwater, food, climate, and wildlife. And as part of their job descriptions, these new lead scientists are going to help our field staff around the world and our own people right here in the U.S. better understand how climate change is already affecting the work they're doing and what we might expect in the future and help develop solutions that might optimize outcomes in a changing climate. So we're really excited about the the big changes coming to our science team. It's going to really be a shot in the arm for the adaptation program to have a lot of this scientific, uh, in-house scientific expertise. Well, I imagine it would be difficult, especially with some of the people that are out in the field that are focusing on specific species and such. And, you know, I think in your program, you guys, and I had this conversation with Nikhil about the use of vulnerability assessments, and there's information that sort of, that comes out of that process. And if it's telling you like, okay, these systems or these species are really not going to do well, how do you guys as an organization make those tough decisions saying we're no longer going to dedicate resources toward the preservation of this species, which would be, you know, a huge culture shift, especially for a lot of the field people? Yeah. And I don't think any conservation organization has made that huge cultural shift yet. I think in the very near future, um, we'll start to make some of those very tough choices, but you know, conservation is a very hopeful field and we've had great success in the past bringing back species that were on the brink of extinction like bald eagles and bison and white rhinos and so we always have in the back of our mind it's going to be really hard but we can do it and i don't think anybody that i know of right now is ready to give up on any species and we probably shouldn't just yet but i think 
as we plan for longer-term strategies, clearly we're going to have to make some decisions about where to place our resources. You know, tigers, big cats in general, are quite resilient species. Uh, I think Nikhil brought this up in his podcast. You know, because they can live in all kinds of environments and all kinds of climates, we probably have a good chance of saving those under a changing climate if we can deal with all the other threats they face. But there's some species that are just might not have too much longer with us. And at some point we're going to have to cut our losses and put resources into things that we can actually help. You've been around the environmental movement for a while. And there's this notion of like, you know, when the environment suffers, humans suffer. And, you know, when it's it's sort of almost a marketing ploy. And in theory, I support it, but you, <laughs> I think it's a lot of it's empty rhetoric. You know, if I may be so bold, I just think it's a lot of it empty rhetoric. And to me, that's where I see adapting to climate change is actually an opportunity to add some urgency to that notion. Like we need to get beyond the intrinsic value of wildlife, even though I think there's intrinsic value. What is the sort of the practical value of adapting to climate change? And so I, I guess where I'm, I'm trying to pivot here is you, you've wrote a lot and I would like you maybe to explain a bit more about this ecosystem based adaptation. And it seems like that kind of fits into the more practical value of, of doing these things. I could talk forever about ecosystem-based adaptation. So glad you brought it up. I've been recently deemed a world-renowned expert in this field. Oh, wow. Ecosystem-based adaptation is really meant to help people adapt to the changing climate using nature and biodiversity and ecosystem services. And so it's, it's a great opportunity for the conservation world to get what we hope are one of those win-wins where by saving nature, we're also helping people adapt to the very serious changes they're facing in their daily lives. But there's a lot of confusion around uh, ecosystem-based adaptation, EBA, and uh, a, a lot of different groups are trying it out based on different assumptions. And I spend a lot of my time talking to people about exactly what EBA is and what it's meant to do. I had some fascinating discussions. Well, would you say it's more in the realm of like international adaptation as opposed to seeing it more domestically? Uh, it, it's being applied everywhere, but you know, from WWF, we tend to work mostly, WFUS anyway, we tend to work mostly in developing countries and with people who are very, live very close to nature and rely on natural resources for their livelihoods. And so we, we see it as a big opportunity in developing countries to help and people while achieving our mission of saving endangered species and just nature and biodiversity in general. But I think you're right. We have to move on, and I think WWF has done this for a while now. We have to move beyond saving nature for nature's sake because we all love polar bears and pandas. Aren't they cute? Uh, wouldn't it be a shame if we lost them? And really focusing on the needs of people and how they really need ecosystems and ecosystem services to survive, particularly in a changing climate. And adaptation does have that potential to be sort of this unifying force that we can rally around and uh, work with development groups and humanitarian groups, along with conservation groups to come together and really help people in nature at the same time. So I really don't know a lot about ecosystem-based adaptation. I started reading some of the, the columns that you've put out. And so just, just for listeners, that you, I, I'm going to share these in the show notes, the links to some of those those columns yeah. and stuff. There's some really great stuff. And I, you, you write some really provocative pieces. I enjoyed reading them. But 
I didn't quite get, and please just explain, like, the notion of ecosystem services versus ecosystem-based adaptation. Are they one and the same? I mean, what what's really the difference? Okay, great. So ecosystems, um, let's assume that everyone understands what an ecosystem is, but basically it's a collection of living organisms interacting with one another and their physical environment. And those ecosystems provide services to other living things, including human beings. So one that we often cite are, you know, bees provide pollination services for our crops. And so we we have food to eat. Uh, that's just one example of an ecosystem service. When you talk about climate change and adaptation, there are other services that nature can provide us that help us reduce our vulnerability to climate change. For example, a natural wetland could absorb a lot of water And if we get rid of those wetlands, we're much more prone to flooding. So by maintaining or restoring wetlands, we can actually help people reduce people's vulnerability to floods. So the ecosystem would be the wetland. The ecosystem service is flood control. And the ecosystem-based adaptation intervention is to help people by restoring and maintaining wetlands that will continue to provide that service for them under a changing climate. How was that? So has, no, that was beautiful. And so there, there is this very tight relationship between the two concepts. And I'm just, there is actually a lot of, you know, academic literature and economics behind ecosystem services and programs to do that. And so is the ecosystem based adaptation maturing like that? Are there like models of like, okay, people are comfortable plugging, you know, funding into a, I'm going to call it an EBA, if that's all right, um, that can start. And you'd mentioned there's really not a ton of examples, but is it maturing quickly enough where people can start dedicating real money toward these things? Well, there is actually a lot of funding. I wouldn't say a lot of funding, but there is some dedicated funding out there for ecosystem-based adaptation work. And I see one of the problems with this dedicated EBA funding is that a lot of people are taking what they're already doing and calling it EBA, justifying it somehow to get the funding. And this is where it gets really hard to say, well, are they really doing EBA or are they just doing business usual conservation or are they business as usual sustainable development? Um, so it really gets hard to actually identify what's EBA and what's not. And so we're it's hard to say if it's maturing. There's a lot of activity going out there, but... It's so new and so much going on. We really haven't got our head around what it is and is it working? I, well, I, I can well, maybe had, try to say something else. If that did, go, if, go if ahead, that go ahead, go ahead. No, no, keep going. So the original question was, is the field of ecosystem-based adaptation maturing enough that we, we have some answers or maybe some models that we could follow? And I think there's a lot of things out there that are ecosystem-based adaptation and people don't realize it. And there's a lot of things that people are calling ecosystem-based adaptation and it really isn't. And so we have to really comb through lots and lots of examples to find what is actually EBA and is it working. There's actually dedicated funding for EBA, but uh, I find that this can actually be problematic. I was Working while well, I still am working with a group in Central Asia designing an EBA project. And they got some dedicated EBA funding to help mountain communities in, in Kyrgyzstan. And 
EDA is a great solution that's often looking for a problem to solve. So hmm. they got their EBA money, and then we went to the community that we're supposed to be helping, and we found, well, actually – EBA probably isn't the best solution for this community. Uh, there's not much more we can do. The, the nature is pretty pristine and well intact and pretty well managed. What else could we possibly do to help these people using ecosystems and ecosystem services? The people actually wanted to put in potato chip factories to improve their income. And uh, mm. that's not an ecosystem-based adaptation solution, but that's what the people wanted. But, you know, we're chasing EBA dollars, and then we go looking uh, for a place that might need this solution without working with communities first to see what are the best solutions for them. EBA could be part of that, but not necessarily always the answer. Well, I'm very interested in domestic applications, too, and, you know, the largest a pot of money for conservation funding in the United States is at the USDA, the Department of Agriculture. And it's, to be quite honest, it's in these very crude conservation programs like the Conservation Reserve Program that are just getting these marginal environmental outcomes. But on paper, they're, they're these conservation programs. And, and I know USDA is starting to think about climate change adaptation, but I, I think of a, something like ecosystem-based adaptation. If you can give them some models, getting them comfortable with future projections that you know, you start directing those dollars that they have, and we're talking billions of dollars, it just in a more strategic way. It just would have these, I would hope, big landscape outcomes. And so I, I hold out hope that people are toiling away and thinking about those things, uh, dealing with the ag department. Um, I'm not that familiar with USDA programs because most of our work is overseas. But what you just said allows me the opportunity to rant about one of my big EBA bugaboos, and that is is that we're all counting on ecosystems to help us deliver services under a changing climate, and far too often we forget that those ecosystems themselves are under increased stress just because of the climate change. It's like if you are picking a tug-of-war team, you might be picking grandma to help you out, and that's not always the best choice. You want to pick the biggest and strongest athletes on your tug-of-war team, and we are just counting on ecosystems that are already highly degraded and undergoing stress, and we really don't know if they're going to, how long they're going to continue to provide service for us. So, um, you know, I, I sometimes wonder that we might be, uh, particularly from the conservationist side, are we overselling the promise of EBA in a quick attempt to achieve some of our conservation goals without looking at the long-term well-being of the communities that we're trying to help. Uh, I don't think anyone's doing that intentionally, but I think it's this blind spot that we have that ecosystems will be okay as long as we protect them from humans and we don't think about the climate impacts on those ecosystems that we're relying on. No, excellent point. And, you know, just a, a follow-up to your comment about being able to identify adaptation and what are some of the really good examples out there. I don't know if you had a chance uh, to listen to the podcast with uh, Dr. Molly Cross from the Wildlife Conservation Society, but we talk about adaptation a lot and how do you, and this happens everywhere. It's like, what truly is adaptation? And, you know, we use the example of there's that su- famous Supreme Court case, uh, Justice Potter talking about <laughs> pornography. It's all right. See, it, it lends it. Yes. Right. Okay, good. We're in the same line. It's like, you know it when you see it. 
Exactly. And are we ever going to get there in adapt? And maybe we won't, but I, I always felt that was a great example of like, we need to try harder, you yeah. know? So actually, you know, I, I, I started out talking about adaptation and comparing it to pornography, but actually now I think it's a little bit the reverse. It's much easier to find, but it's harder to find it when you see it, particularly as we mainstream it more. So. If you're talking about an adaptation project, something that I really think is leading us in the wrong direction, dedicated funding for adaptation. Yes, it's needed, but it tends to isolate and segregate adaptation from everything else that we uh, should be integrating it into. When you're talking about discrete adaptation projects, yes, it's easy to see. You have some clearly uh, identified climate-related vulnerabilities and some actions that you're taking to help reduce that vulnerability. But when you start mainstreaming adaptation, it just becomes part of the natural fabric of what you're doing every day, and it kind of gets blended in and lost. It's an ingredient to a cake like sugar. Once you bake it, you don't see the sugar anymore, but you can taste it. No, I, I like that where you went with that, though. That's very useful. It's it, it and, and, you know, we're still defining it. You know, it's people are still figuring this out. And some exciting things are actually happening that we don't even realize. You know, I always find that I pop in and, like, especially with this podcast, people are kind of coming out of the woodwork. And it's like they make me think about adaptation in such a different way than I was even yeah. thinking about before. And so. I changed my mind. I mean, my mind's evolving all the time, too. And what I used to talk about a year ago or five years ago is very different now. Sean, I want to pivot from our conversation about how organization, you know, WWF, or what we were talking, I think, about organizations in the field in general could start incorporating adaptation. I want to talk about communication and how do you communicate adaptation. It's something I've been obsessed with for years, and I've been trying to come up with adaptation elevator speech probably for like eight or nine years. And you and I chatted a little bit about this, and I know that you recently had sort of a an exercise with some employees about that. And so what I've asked Sean to do is we're going to have uh, sort of a top three countdown from each of us of like the top three challenges, opportunities, or whatever associated with climate change communication. But I do want to give a little bit more background, and this is something that Sean does all the time. And so um, I think it's a topic you're very enthusiastic about. But, yeah, your thoughts about communicating adaptation and then, you know, even sharing some insights from that workshop and giving us a little bit more background, I think people would be fascinated by it. So, yeah, I'm really excited to talk about this because this really is my passion about the whole adaptation field is communicating to people and helping them understand what we're talking about and helping them find solutions to their problems. On Friday, we had a communications consultant come to WF to talk to my team about communicating our work because as much as we think we understand it, it's very clear to us, you know, it's really hard for other people to really grasp what we're trying to do. And uh, mm-hmm. I guess the takeaway of the day would be avoid the usage of overly technical polysyllabic terminology in discussions with local stakeholders or don't use big words. That was the big takeaway. <laughs> Well, it must have been hard to set ground rules for that. I mean, I don't know who your your the facilitator was or what their background was, but it's just like, okay, you come in and you're just like, all right, what audience are we talking to? Is it the public? Is it like our own employees? And so, I mean, did you set kind of ground rules like that? Uh, we had very few ground rules. We just started talking, and the facilitator, his name's Chad Hepner. He's a brilliant uh, communications consultant, and he's helped WWF in the past. He picked audiences that we are likely to talk to. So it could be a donor. It could be members of WWF staff. 
It might be a local villager or a Peace Corps volunteer. And each time we had to rethink about how we're talking to those very different audiences because everyone has is approaching the problems from different points of view. And we tend to say the same thing to everybody using those polysyllabic, overly technical words. Well, I, I love that angle, like uh, the donor, you know, that's a very small group of people, but obviously critically yeah. important. And so what is that pitch to them? So yeah, that, that would have been fascinating to like what might have been an effective one. I guess you're still yeah, working on it because you know you're still. When it comes down to it, no matter who it is, a donor or a, a government uh, partner, it's all about making the work relevant to somebody on a personal level. And, you know, just describing what you do and the, your goals and objectives just really doesn't hit it in that respect. It's about telling the stories. And we all knew that, but we thought we were doing a good job, but we learned we still have a long way to go. I'm going to try to remember to put it on the show notes, but you ha- I think it's a pretty old column that you have, but you talked about bringing staff in and doing PowerPoint presentations and like the sort of, I don't know if you even remember this column you wrote, but the sort of advice you give on like what's going to resonate, most people aren't going to want this was yeah. yours, right? I want to make yeah, sure it was, you must have found and it was just I like I think I sent it to you. You must have found it. On no, it's on that oh, page. Okay. No, it was on your um the one main page there. It's just uh yeah, it was one of the top ones there. And so anyway, it just talked about the the dangers of just doing a typical yeah. PowerPoint presentation, and then you had a series of recommendations on how to to really resonate with the, the people watching you. And then you know you had the examples of two employees who did it. One not so successful. The other one who really kind of went outside their comfort zone and really were, was successful. And so I. I that was yeah, great. that was all about – I remember what you're talking about now. That was all about using lessons learned in presentations and not talking about what we've achieved and all the great success we've had, but really opening up our vulnerabilities and showed where we've made some mistakes and how we've recovered. And people just find that so refreshing. And it's something we can relate to on a personal level because we're all making mistakes and we're all trying to figure this out together. And it was, I remember those two presentations and it was just like night and day. But lately that was a while ago because I'm just trying to avoid PowerPoint presentations altogether. I Hmm. really think they are not helping. And so in our workshops, ever since I was a little kid, I love, I used to make board games for me and my brother and sister to play. And I've continued to develop games just as a hobby in, you know, even my professional life as an adult. And so our workshop incorporates a lot of fun activities and games for people to actually experience the learning. I, I found that, you know, we, we spend, 12, 16, 18 years, no matter how long you go to school, sitting behind a desk listening to somebody talk, and we're done with that. Once we're an adult, we want to be kids again. And if you can teach people by making them have, allowing them to have fun, it's a much more effective experience. And so we use a lot of games and activities, and I really try to minimize the use of PowerPoint as much as possible. Yeah, I find nowadays it's just there as a visual prompt for my next set of talking points. Yeah. You know, the scripted PowerPoint is just lethal. You know, it's just it, it people the smartphones come out and it's it's just not good. Yep. You want to talk about our top three communications challenges? 
Yeah, let's do That's three good. down to one. I don't know if you like did a priority ranking, but uh, yeah, let's. And so the the kind of rules were this is that we're just going to go back and forth. And if I think Sean had a really stupid idea, I'm just going to just tell him. So we we want we didn't want to agree the whole time. Hopefully, oh, okay. so well, all right. Okay, I'm putting on my. <laughs> I might not say it's stupid. Um, <laughs> Number three. Well, actually, I did it kind of different, Doug, because I have my top three kind of in chronological order as I discover them. So I don't know if any are thinking. That's fine. The other, but uh, I guess no rules. Go for it. Well, for me, when I first got into this game, and I was told make a training program about adaptation so everybody gets it, I found that the biggest challenge initially is all the confusing terminology we use in the field and what's really deceptive about the terminology we use is that we're not inventing new words that no one understands as we develop the field of adaptation but we're recycling old words that people already have assigned another meaning to and we're using them in a new context, and it really confuses people. So like the word adaptation itself, for a biologist, that means why ducks have webbed feet. It does not mean right. reducing vulnerability to anticipated changes in climate. And so we spent a lot of time just getting everybody on the same page about confusing terms that people kind of use haphazardly, assuming that everyone understands what they're talking about. Simple words like impacts can mean a million different things. And so that was my uh, first communications challenge is to get everybody to understand the words that we're using and what they mean. Not that there's a right way or wrong way to talk about any of these things, but that we all have to agree on a common way for at least the time we're together discussing the topic. And you know that you that's an interesting point too is like you think of what's happened to the word mitigation and now mitigation is pretty much associated with carbon emissions, but for a long time and even to a certain extent it it was used to talk about like you're mitigating the worst effects of something right. and so you know within government agencies mitigation meant something almost positive and now you know mitigation really is you know when I think I'm thinking carbon emissions right but still when we talk to our friends in the humanitarian action field people like Red Cross mitigation means reducing risk to disasters and so even when we say mitigation across sectors it has different meanings well okay so I'm going to throw mine out now I just want to go back and forth here and so um I just have my th- third one, I think I'm just doing a ranking here, is like living in the shadow of mitigation. And I feel like adaptation is still this emerging discipline that, you know, mitigation gets all the attention in, in the media. And, you know, I think rightly so in some ways we have to address the carbon problem or we're not going to be able to adapt to anything. I get that. But in, I guess it comes in response to being able to Get people to understand what we mean by adaptation that, you know, no matter what happens, we're going to have to adapt to a warming world. We're just talking about degrees of warming. And so living in that shadow, people still want to just talk like there's this sort of default. If you start talking climate change, there's this sort of default kind of response to what you're talking about. And I kind of like equate it. It's the whole notion of like sustainability for the longest time. You know, you have sustainability officers. It's like that person who uh, changes light bulbs and it just it was always kind of considered like that kind of annoying thing and i don't want adaptation to take the sustainability route you know it needs to kind of come out into its own and at 
I naively believe this, that eventually, once we truly get serious about mitigation, it's just going to be a subset under adaptation. As we adapt to climate change, that also means mitigating our carbon emissions. And I think everything will fall under adaptation, but I could be totally wrong on that. Yeah, I agree 100%, actually. First of all, mitigation, reducing carbon emissions is the ultimate adaptation, right? It is the biggest thing we Mm -hmm. need to do to reduce our long-term vulnerability. So uh, we should not be in the shadows of adaptation or we should not be in the shadows of mitigation. We are in the forefront. But you're right. uh, Adaptation has always been this poor stepsister in the climate world to mitigation. I really believe that, you know, the stepsisters are starting to wake up and realizing we're the beautiful Cinderella with a glass slipper and we're going to triumph. But you're right. It's way too competitive and when it doesn't need to be. These are things that both need to happen together. I think the biggest problem, a barrier we have about communicating and climate change in general, you know, you're right. It always used to be about reducing emissions, reducing emissions. And we talk about long-term projections and people didn't realize the immediacy of the problem or the the urgent nature in which we need to to tackle these challenges. Lately, we're starting to see lots of bad stuff happen, like it's 37 degrees warmer in the Arctic than it should be, and we have massive forest fires, and 90% of the, the Great Barrier Reef bleached this year. And we're talking about these very real climate-related impacts as they're happening, and the call to action is always still so reduce your greenhouse gas emissions. Join a carpool. And I'm I'm working right. with our comms team here to say it has to be a dual call to action. We need to accept the fact that it's now warmer in the Arctic, and we need to adapt to that. At the same time, we're slowing down the rate of that change by reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. But the general tone about climate communications is mitigation can solve our problems. And that's got to change. That's why I referred to my people on the Titanic as putting all their faith in captain mitigation because they don't have to jump ship if we can, if the captain can save it. Do you know, I think his name's Dave Roberts. He used to write for Grist. Do you know him? Is that who it is? Dave Roberts? Does that ring a bell? He wrote this piece about adaptation and mitigation, and he was just lambasting adaptation. And this was a relatively recent piece, too, maybe the last couple of years, saying it's the realm of the elite. And it's just how rich countries are kind of wanting to ignore the larger issue of mitigation. And I had this conversation with Laura Hansen and it was just, we were just both dumbfounded. It's just like none of us in the adaptation field don't want like the Paris agreement not to happen. But this guy really just went on the attack of saying this is this, it, it's a way of making ourselves feel good about ourselves. So anyway, I don't know if you were familiar uh, with it. I'm familiar with it that I listened to the podcast with you and Lara talking about it. No, that's right. All right, there we go. And you listen to I it. I have so, yeah. the same reactions like, what planet is this guy living on? First of all, if anything, we in the developed world think we can, ad- we have the resources to, well, we are the ones that are the primary emitter, emitters, and it's our responsibility to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. It's the poor people that are going to suffer, so they need to adapt. So mitigation is a first world problem adaptation is a third world problem that's really been my experience uh working with people in all different contexts all over the world and so i've never heard before that adaptation is a first world problem unless they're just thinking you know what he was saying is we can adapt our way out of everything we don't really need to mitigate 
All right, so maybe you've already dealt with it, but do, what's your second one? Let's just keep going down these, the list. Um, I think the next big challenge we have is turning climate science into actionable intelligence. Hmm. We just have okay. a huge flood of climate science coming at us constantly, and none of it is really answering the questions we have. I, a friend of mine who works for WF Hungary likes to give this presentation where, you know, they're talking to, to farmers in the communities they work in and they're showing them all these graphs and, you know, the hockey stick graph and all these tables of observed anomalies. And in the end, the people just want to know what's going to happen to my cattle. And the climate science that we're producing today is not designed to answer those kind of questions. And so we've recently uh, began a partnership with the Center for Climate Systems Research at Columbia University, really deep expertise on climate science, to help us work with stakeholders to define their problems and what kind of information they need so they can actually do something. And some of the, the early findings we have in our work together is forget all these long-term predictions, 2050, by the end of the century – that's not actionable. And we're starting to provide people uh, with a lot more information on observed trends that they've seen already, which is always the best place to start. And then the near term, what's going to happen in the next 10, 20 years? And this is really all that people can think about and feel like they have, they're empowered to do something to make changes for the future. After that, all bets are off. That's a good one. I just had a conversation with someone about the National Climate Assessment. It's this, you know, that, what is it, the five-year yeah. effort to produce. The, Let's hope and it continues. No one, right, but the the point with the National Climate Assessment is that the people aren't necessarily using it. I'm glad they're doing it, but it, it's formatted in such a way that the, there's not enough, like, adoption or it's not, like you said, down to the level of someone who actually needs that information. And so... I, I'm very sympathetic to the folks at the National Climate Assessment. They can't be all things for everyone, but you know, even when I was working in Florida, I didn't even know what the National Climate Assessment was. And you know, that's on me, but I was the climate change guy and I still didn't quite get it was there as a resource and I, I don't think that's changing much. And so it making that climate science relevant is a is a tricky one. Yeah. So it's a good it's point. It's a great national climate assessment is a great resource, but you're right, you gotta be a climate nerd to really get into that stuff. I actually read it, I think it was Christmas Eve when it came out in twenty fourteen. That's that's <laughs> how like excited I get about this stuff. But yeah. Are people oh, using it? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. All right, my number two is like I have the the public and, and especially people in our field aren't necessarily, I think, recognizing the urgency of the issue. And, you know, I'm making a lot of assumptions there, but I almost feel like adaptation has almost become like an issue, like invasive species. It's that, you know, we've created programs for it. Now we're addressing it and you get some staff to deal with it. And some people get the scope and how all-encompassing of a threat this is. But I worry that, you know, now it's kind of been compartmentalized and it's almost just like it's it's a tool in your toolkit. And I worry that if there isn't this acknowledgement of how big adaptation should really be in driving almost everything, then, you know, we're going to waste a lot of years adapting to climate change. And so to me, it's just that I think people even dealing in adaptation aren't sort of acknowledging the urgency of it. Um, yeah, I certainly agree with you on that point. I think all of our jobs is to, all of our, I think at a, the job of the adaptationist is to put ourselves out of business. Right now we're 
doing adaptation on behalf of everybody else while they merrily go along doing the things that, you know, might not make sense anymore. But we really need to, for adaptation to be just part and parcel with what everyone does on a daily basis so that, you know, if there is a role for adaptation specialists in the future, it's about learning and just, you know, disseminating the knowledge and the insights that we're gaining from all this great experimentation we're doing. But it cannot be a field, an isolated field relegated to a few people who one day are told, hey, guess what? Your new job is adaptation. We're just not going to get anywhere that way. And I, I'll say it again. I think the, the creation of dedicated climate adaptation finance is keeping us from focusing on mainstreaming. Dedicated Hmm. adaptation finance is really preventing mainstreaming from happening. It reinforces this idea that you can get extra money to create projects without really looking at, are you doing the right thing in the first place? And people, I don't want to say that we don't need extra funds to help people adapt. We certainly do. But When people say, you know, we're going to need a lot more money for adaptation. How are we going to pay for all this? I'm saying, well, I think really most of adaptation is going to be paid for by stop doing things that are at high risk in the first place. New York City, after Hurricane Sandy, went through a huge climate change analysis and really has a great adaptation plan. But the city just announced that they are spending billions of dollars to renovate LaGuardia Airport, which is at sea level. Hmm. Why aren't Not listening to each other? Why aren't we trying to find another solution? A lot of people think we should close LaGuardia Airport anyway. Uh yeah, it's a tough problem to to solve, but why spend billions of dollars renovating an airport that has a limited shelf life and then we're going to have to find more money to fix the damage that were caused by investing in something that's highly risky? Doesn't make sense to me. We're at, you're not really doing number one, but we're on your third one. What's your third one? So the last one is one that I've just really come to terms with and the communications actually acknowledging and recognizing and helping people with their very real emotions as they go through this learning journey, particularly for conservationists where as a, as a field, we tend to want to draw a line in the sand and say no more change. And if there's any change, it's going to be backwards and back to the past, restoring nature to what it used to be. And to tell people that, you know, everything that you've worked on for your entire career now needs to be reexamined. We actually may never achieve the things you want to achieve is really hard for people. And we're all still struggling is how do you communicate a sense of urgency, the need to change, perhaps give up on some of your goals. We talked about triage earlier, giving up on some species in favors of others. How do you do that? People can understand it intellectually, but accepting it emotionally is really difficult. If we go back to the Titanic example, um, you know, one of the the, the best things that happened on the Titanic was the musicians who were stoically p- playing cheerful tunes as the ship was going down to keep people, you know, to help calm their fears and keep things moving in an orderly manner. And none of us in the adaptation field that I know of were really trained to play the violin. I certainly wasn't. I was a mean bassoonist in high school, though. But it's kind of a melancholy instrument. You know, I don't really have the tools available to me to make this to, to provide of people a lot of hope when at the same time you have to let them know that 
it, it's really difficult for me to find hopeful ways to talk to people about the change that we're facing and that they may have to give up on some of the things that they cherish the most. You know, I agree. And I think we, we're all struggling with dealing with a kind of a doom and gloom mission. And to me, where the silver lining in that is that I think people like having a responsibility. They, they like having a purpose in life. And so even though there's all these negative things going to happen, convincing people like, adapting is this proactive thing. That's why I always felt like mitigation was the harder thing. It's all right. You know, you have to cut back on some things, but adapting, there's this real opportunity. You know, they talk about just the Marshall plan and all those things. It's, you know, it's a chance maybe to unify people that even though it's going to be tough, it's a chance for you to have a role in helping all of us adapt to climate change. And that's kind of my silver lining thinking on having a purpose, even in dark times, you know, a lot of good can be accomplished. And so I, that's kind of how I look at the topic. And I agree with that 100%. That's what keeps me passionate and motivated in this field in spite of the daily onslaught of depressing news we get. Once you accept that change is happening and that success isn't anything what you would envision it to be, you actually feel incredibly empowered to get on top of the situation and improve outcomes, maybe not achieve success, but improve the outcomes as much as you can in, in spite of all of these challenges we're facing. And that's what I find really tremendously exciting about the work that I do. And it's what keeps me going every day. Well, I joke with people I've said it before is that, you know, don't saddle up with someone, a climate change person at like a cocktail party or anything, you know, just uh, <laughs> help doom and gloom you. So just uh, avoid them like if, if you can. So, okay. So my final one and it, people who have listened to more than two or three podcasts are already going, I know what this guy is going to say. And to me, the biggest issue right now is the whole concept of adaptation versus resilience. And like, what do we mean by those terms and mainly specifically resilience and I've just been hammering on this issue a lot because I just feel with this overemphasis on resilience, it didn't necessarily have to happen. And it's going to lead potentially to a lot of maladaptation in future years. And adaptation is different from resilience. And I'm just curious your thoughts. You know, they're, they're almost used interchangeably. And you know, you guys had just recently had your Fuller seminar where, you know, it was, I think it was called two degrees resilience or I think something it was like a that. Fuller symposium. Two, degree, two degrees later, climate resilience in a changing world. Right. So not climate adaptation yeah. in a changing world. It was resilience. And so why, why was that used? Well, let me first say that I share all of your thoughts on this. A few years ago, when we were struggling to raise money for my program, I talked to some of our development officers here, and they said, because you keep talking about adaptation. Nobody knows what that means. It sounds like we're giving up on all of everything that we want to try to achieve, and it's just depressing. I says, well, what if I talked about resilience? Oh, yeah, we could sell that. That's easy. Well, first of all, resilience isn't always a good thing. You know, tuberculosis is pretty resilient. Terrorist networks are pretty resilient, uh, but people associate resilience with strength and an American value of facing adversity and coming out on top. And so there has been this very significant pivot of talking about adaptation to start talking about resilience. And you can kind of hide the climate change stuff beneath the resilience talk, which I also think is not the way to go. But they are indeed two different things, correlated 
uh, but not synonymous. And we are conflating the two. And where I used to talk a lot about, you know, what's adaptation, now we have to talk about what's resilience and what does that mean? And adaptation and resilience, I, so we've, we talked about my title at the very beginning of the, of the show. It's Senior Director for Climate Change Adaptation and Resilience. I know some of my counterparts of other organizations have dropped the adaptation part and I refuse to do so because Don't do I'm it. not <laughs> going to do it. I'm trying to find a title that's resilient to all the changes in terminology as this field evolves. Uh, I don't want it to become too long, but you know, you can, if you think of resilience as we often do traditionally, well, you can think of, the relationship between adaptation and resilience in a couple ways. You can think of adapting to build resilience, or you can think of building resilience as a way of adapting. And it depends on how you define resilience. So if you're looking at a more traditional way of defining resilience, and that is we can withstand and recover from shocks and disturbances, then you can keep resilience building as something discrete that's different than adaptation. Adaptation becomes adjusting to more long-term chronic stressors, things like sea level rise and and increased temperatures and glacial melt. So you can have resilience and keep it focused on, you know, event-based disruptions and adaptation becomes something that's, you know, addressing longer-term issues. I like to think of it the other way around is broaden the definition of resilience to include not only withstanding and, re- and recovering from uh shocks and disturbance, but also having the ability to transform and adapt to chronic stressors that we're facing. And therefore, building resilience is subsumed under adaptation rather than the other way around. There, you said it. Key. I mean, I've said that before, and to me, you have an adaptation strategy, but then resilience is a tactic underneath that strategy. And and people are putting them at the same level or you you had yeah either at the same level or keeping them separate or conflating the two as if they're identical well they did that at the seminar too i think i heard like by mid-mornings three different definitions and (laughs) so the problem with resilience is that every field every person almost has their own definition of resilience and what it means and how it's applied and so i feel like i'm just back in my early days when we talked about confusing terminology this is the latest one that i have to help people get their heads around well listen if you're reading the national climate assessment on christmas eve i've got a few papers i want to share with you i had a previous guest and i haven't published them yet but um jesse keenan he's a Harvard professor, and he's in their School of Architectural Design, but his emphasis is adaptation. And he came out of the blue, and I had him on, and he's published some amazing literature, like everything that I just kind of fumble through and describe in my own voice. I mean, he is just grounded in academic literature, and he is all over this um, adaptation resilience concept. And it just blew my mind. And he gave me like this 60-page journal dump and i'm like thanks a lot jesse and but i tried to go through most of it but i'll share it with you and i think you'll probably find it kind of fascinating because it 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 provides that sort of academic basis to a lot of these problems and he totally is acknowledging how government and the private sector is jumping on this resilience bandwagon and so it it was really we had a good conversation about it and so it it was nice to see some actual literature not just me going with my gut or that people are thinking like that yeah that sounds like a real page turner as i'm waiting for santa claus so please (laughs) do save do send 
he's a great writer, but you know, the difference between a journal article and maybe reading something like, you know, a different magazine, it, it, you got to just put your, but if you read the national climate assessment, you're up for yeah. it. So, um, uh, well, okay. So yeah, that's adaptation and resilience. And I, I just want to end with that. The idea of, you know, you came up with your, your definition, but it's a whole topic in itself, but maladaptation, you know, one person's resilience is another person's maladaptation. And those are the things that we need to factor. Yeah. And I think, you know, us, the, I'm not us, but I mean, especially World Wildlife Fund, just when you're dealing with natural resources, they have been at the forefront of adaptation planning, but I, I truly worry it as society really gears up to climate proof itself that the natural resources once again will be on the losing end of the stick. And I feel like there's this window that if, you know, people like you are out there working with other sectors that thinking about, you know, ecosystem based adaptation, let it all work together. There's a real opportunity. But it could easily go the other way. Yeah, you know? and that's what we're really concerned about and something that I've been harping on for quite some time. As a lot of people are advocating for more and more adaptation finance, I'm saying, you know, not all adaptation is going to be good for us. Uh, there can be a lot of damage done in the name of adaptation to the very things that we're trying to save in the face of climate change. And we really need to work with our partners to help understand that. There is some, uh, you know, positive developments we've been talking to the asian development bank and they are uh considering making some serious investments in ecosystem-based adaptation and so we're working with them to help them figure out what does that mean for them and how can we use nature to help them solve some of their problems so sean we've been talking for a while and um i i do want to wrap this up this has been a fascinating conversation and i think most importantly You've been cleaning up the mess that Nikhil left, and I think that's the most important thing. Who are you going to get to clean I, up my mess? Uh, <laughs> right, right, let me look at the Rolodex at WWF. No, but I, I do want to end with a question here, and I, I'm, I'm trying to start uh, something, and I'm going to start with you on the American Apps podcast, is that – you know, I have all these amazing guests who come on. We have these, I, I'm, I feel like I'm so fortunate to have these conversations with folks. And so I'm going to ask you, who would you like to hear on a future America Daps podcast? And, and just think big too. And maybe you have some ways of helping make that happen, but like what sort of topic or is there a particular speaker? And I, I want to keep doing with, with each speaker. They'll give me a recommendation and, and th- that'd be very helpful to me. And I'm the first person you're asking this, huh? Well, I, I get recommendations all the time, but I want to make this part of the podcast where I'm asking my guest is saying, like, who would you like to see come on? And there's no guarantee. I mean, you know, I, I joke, get Leo DiCaprio. Heck, yeah, I'd love to give him. But, I mean, maybe there's someone you just think does a dazzling job in one area of adaptation that really needs to kind of get out wider. So, just, yeah, I'm putting you on the spot, but I'm putting you on because the spot. there's so many people that I admire that I would love to recommend to you, but I'm also thinking – I want you to get somebody on the show that I haven't had the chance to speak to so I can learn from. Yeah. And I'm trying to think who that is. It's a pretty small world. We kind of all know each other. So who would I love for you to talk with? And I know you're going to edit out this long pause, as I think. Take your time. Um, as I'm thinking, I'm just going to blurt out a few suggestions, and then maybe one of them will turn into something. Hannah Reed at IIED, she's done a lot of great work looking at the field of adaptation and can speak on the topic and the evidence base for EBA much, much better than I did. And I, I, I would really love to hear what she has to say about the latest findings on EBA. And, and so do you know her? I you know, I know her. Uh, another great person 
you could talk to uh, is Heather McRae, who used to, until very recently, head the climate adaptation work at World Resources Institute. She's just left that job to begin a whole new venture called the Climate Resilience Justice Fund that's really mm-hmm. about providing rural poor indigenous communities in developing areas of the world with access to resources to, you know, empower their own adaptation. Uh, she's brand new in that job, but maybe in a while you should get her thoughts. She's, she's a fascinating uh, person to talk to. No, I will. I will follow up that that's perfect. And I'm also just, you know, those are two that I would love to get on and you helping make those introductions always, that always goes a long way. Just gives them a sense like what the heck is this podcast? And I also looking for non-traditional guests. Like I'm, I've got like uh, the work trying to use a connection, trying to get Dave Barry, the author. I'd love to hear what they have to say. Oh, well, you know what? I'm trying to get, um, representative Curbelo on. Do you know who that is? He's from South Florida. He's a Miami Republican, but he's part of this very small Republican climate change caucus. And I'm trying to get him on just to talk about, you know, adaptation in South Florida. And so, uh, yeah, I, I'm looking at, you know, yeah, I would totally. I, this is like a nonpartisan kind of podcast. We yeah. talk about partisan issues on occasion, but we're not flamethrowing or anything. And I, I would love to get someone like that on, too. Yeah, so. I don't want to talk about politics, but what's fascinated me about this election is – you know, I'm really using the opportunity because I was blindsided just like everybody else. I'm from Western Pennsylvania myself, so I really can understand where a lot of Trump supporters are coming from. But I'm really using the opportunity to try to learn from people who don't think like me what they could see as a, a way of moving forward when some people don't believe in climate change or even if they do, their economic interests are more immediate to them than what they perceive as a long-term problem. No, I think that's that's a smart move. And I, I've looked at this podcast and how could I bring a, a more populist vein to it? You know, people like you listen to this podcast, but what can I do? What kind of guests can I bring on to like expand that orbit just a little bit more? So I think the election has caused all of us to like, how do we get out there a little bit more? You know, I'll, I'll add this because I was going to say it and it didn't come up. But I love the name of your podcast, and I'm a uh, I, I'm a real stickler for semantics. America adapts is a great name for a podcast. I have a, a, a big problem with using adaptation as a noun rather than adapt as a verb. When you say America adapts, it is a transformational process that engages the entire nation, whether you realize it or not. And compare that if you have chosen adaptation in America. It would just be people like you and me talking to each other without reaching that larger audience. You know, this isolated field by a bunch of nerds who read the National Assessment Report on Christmas Eve. (laughs) So I'm all for it. Like, let's get out there and try to bring in more people into this movement. No, I, I appreciate you noticing it. You know, there actually was a lot of thought in the title America Adapts goes back a few years. And so, yeah, adapts is this proactive, like, movement. That's the perfect word. And if we can start a bit of a movement here to, like, adapt to climate change, then that, that's, that's what we're going for. So. I'm right with you. So any final words before we, we sign off here, Sean? I think that was my final word. I just was a good one. love the name of your podcast, and it's very empowering. And thank you for the opportunity. This has really been fun, and I look forward to hearing the additional guests you have on in the future. 
Well, again, thank you so much. It's, it's an honor to have, you know, World Wildlife Fund. You guys are legends and I will be in touch about the podcast and, you know, what we did with Nikhil. It's just, you have much larger network and Facebook or twi- tweeting than I do. And I, I, I hope you guys can share it far and wide because I think what you said here is going to be incredibly useful to a lot of people. Well, I so, so I'll be in touch that way. Well, thanks, Doug. This has really been a lot of fun. Anything I can do to help you out, please let me know. All right. And everyone, thanks for joining in. This is America Daps, a climate change podcast. Okay, everyone, that is the latest episode of America Daps. Thank you so much, Sean Martin, for joining me. What a fantastic conversation. I learned a ton. And with a lot of these guests, I stay connected with these folks, and I keep learning from them. And so that's what I'm hoping with Sean. He's doing some amazing work at the World Wildlife Fund and will continue to do so. So finally, I just want to remind you, I do have the Facebook groups, the community group, and the Facebook page. Check those out. Just do a search for America Daps. If you have ideas for guests, I'd mentioned earlier in the show, if you're a government employee, you know what's going on on climate change, please contact me. Just go to my website at americaadapts.org, and there's contact information for me. It's just americaadapts at gmail.com. Please let me know. Or if you just have suggestions for the show or ideas for additional guests, I keep hearing from folks, and um, I'm like I'm trying to expand some of the topic areas, public health, you know, pop culture, I, I, the sky's the limit, and I, my universe is truly open with this podcast on what it means to adapt to climate change. So, yeah, please consider joining me. And don't forget, I now have that app. Just go on to the App Store if or in, with Android. I'm not quite sure what your App Store is, but it's I think a Google Play version is available, too. Just search for America Daps. Trust me, the functionality will be much easier to use than your typical podcast, and it would be really cool. And if you are so inclined... Let me know if you join the community page. Just let me know that you, you've, you've gotten the app and, uh, I, I'm trying to create a, a bit of a community on a community group page. So share stories, share pictures, anything like that. Hopefully somewhat related to what we're talking about here. And on, I guess, final note is that I am an independent podcaster. If you are a foundation, or a conservation group that wants to learn more about what podcasting is and what it might mean for like, moving the conservation movement forward, I would like to have the conversation with you. So just uh, get a hold of me at the email that I mentioned earlier. And I do have a PayPal option for those people. A lot of people, uh, podcasters are independent and they get support through – uh, they're listeners, so please consider you go to the website, americadaps.org, and consider supporting the website. I am an independent operator, and so that's, uh, yeah, it, much appreciated. But uh, on that note, thanks again for joining in, and I will see you next week with Dr. Karen Bolter, sea level rise researcher out of South Florida. I hope everyone has a great week.